Right, we're back with, um, I think, episode four. You probably hear me drinking red wine, which has come back to the pod. And <laughs> we're here with Tyler Newman, who will let, I'll let him introduce himself properly in a second. But this is an interesting one, because different to the last episode with Adam, which I've now decided is episode three. And I said, I didn't really know him. I do know Tyler quite well, but I feel like I don't know what he does that well, because unlike previous episodes last year or whatever, it's not e-com. Well, it kind of is e-com in a way, but it's not like physical products e-com. It's not a marketing agency. It's not in, well, it is info products, but it's different to like mm-hmm. Billy. Um, and I feel like property in general is just a, a space that I don't really know really that much about. And certainly, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like people that might listen to this for because they're interested in e-com or whatever, might think property is what old people do mm-hmm. and you need fucking three billion pounds to start or whatever. So my point is, yeah, I think it's a super interesting space. What mm-hmm. you're doing is interesting. I know a little bit, but like with the last episode, to be fair, I'm hopefully going to learn a lot and then we can just get a bit weird with it and delve into a few different things and <laughs> go from there. But yeah, I guess that's my little intro. Um, to start with, just... Yeah, I guess tell us who you are, but then maybe just give us a rundown from how you, you know, the past few years, how you've got to where you are now with a fucking Lamborghini with the roof that comes off. The roof that comes off. Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll dive into what I'm doing right now, maybe in a bit more detail, but um, my name is Tyler Newman. I'm essentially the property guy, the real estate guy, whatever umbrella you want to put me under. Um but also, I guess, a few things within property space, but also just business in general. So um, currently, I've got... Essentially, there's there's two sides to what I do. There's my actual physical property business, where we're doing yeah. actual property um, d- developments. Bigger land developments is our primary focus right now, amongst other things. And then we have an education side to our business, which you could also call our, our coaching business, info products, kind of. Dirty word. Yeah, I just try and I try and stay away from that sort of terminology because, again, it puts puts you under probably the wrong umbrella. And we are um, our intent is to turn it into a proper education business. It's mm-hmm. it's not um, as simple as just selling courses online it's we want to build a proper education company well that's what we're doing that's what we've done um with um and that and that you know interpret that as you will so that's essentially what we what we do right now um hence why we do a lot on social media um that really fuels the education side and then that education side maybe i'll dive into that in a bit um then fuels our actual property side and so there's we're all part of this one big cycle but my entrepreneurship journey sort of started way, way young. I can't even remember when. I'm I'm very fortunate that um, I grew up in the Midlands, a place called Rugby, and had an amazing, amazing family life. One of the things I'm, I'm most grateful for because, as we all know, we are shaped by our childhood probably far more than we're consciously aware of it mm. um, in many different ways. So had an amazing childhood, um, Dad is a businessman, entrepreneur, has an estate agency business, which I've really seen just grow as well over the years. Um, more so in the last in the last three, five years, it's really begun to take off. And at a point now where actually I can also provide a lot of value to his business and implement some of the, st- some of the strategies in our education side into his, especially on this whole um, customer acquisition side, which is really exciting. 
Um, but yeah, always, but sort of grew up in that environment, amazing family life, went on, you know, amazing holidays, was never spoiled. I, I always sort of, the way to describe it is I was on that perfect sort of knife's edge or, or balance of mm. not given too much, not spoiled, where I was kind of stripped away of, of that opportunity to make something myself and pursue something myself but then also I never really went without um so extremely fortunate in that sense and that's also one of the main drivers for the education side of things you know I'm very very conscious there's a lot of people out there that haven't had the fortune of of good role models in their life growing up maybe good family haven't had someone believe in them and um so if I can um help people in that sense then I almost feel like a little bit like that's my duty to 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 pass that on but yeah um I been from an early age was interested in self-development I was always after school on YouTube watching Tony Robbins videos I'd be searching motivational videos and Grant Cardone surely and just watching yeah well Grant's obviously came a little bit later but um you'd watch these old whole montages that get you super pumped up and yeah um like boxing film montage with like that's it or like gladiator the rocky, music the rocky balboa clip of uh him. david goggins that was it david goggins um but even then this this was before all those this would have been you know yeah. when i was like 12 13 primarily tony robbins he was a big shaper in for me and and um done a lot of Tony's events I think he's heavily from an early age put me on the right path of sort of self-development I started a couple of businesses while I was young um actually you probably don't know this um first one was drop shipping um I didn't know that I didn't even know it was drop shipping I didn't know what drop ship the word drop shipping or e-com even was I just found out about Alibaba because yeah like any young kid that wanted to make money I'd gone on YouTube and I'd searched how to make money online and they talk about Alibaba and I found some replica maybe Rolex watches that I just replica um, not but they weren't they weren't branded Rolex they just similar sort of designs imported some of them tried to sell them in school playground turns out they weren't the ideal market for it so that's not drop shipping because you're buying stock that's that's the proper way well, yeah, again, if you're, yeah. If okay, you're holding the stock, not drop shipping, just ecom. Yeah. Um, that that never really took off. Like, and we're talking such small numbers, maybe like buying a hundred quid's worth of stock. In fact, I even think I, I requested like a, a some free samples or a, a sample pack yeah. for like a hundred pounds that I thought I'd flip for three, four hundred mm. quid, and I was going to be the biggest baller in the playground. Um, Got that, to start somewhere. And then I could, you know, what, I'd really have to think to reel them off. But started had had. Two econ brands while at school, both in the clothing space. Um, I didn't know that. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so so the first one sort of started when I was around maybe fifteen, maybe sixteen years old, and it was sort of a streetwear brand. It was just some designs that my artist friend designed on Adobe Illustrator. We mm. sent it to some print on demand, uh, not print on demand, screen printing company. They printed it off. Again, sell them in the school, little Facebook page. Didn't know what paid traffic was. Didn't know what Facebook ads were. And I kicked myself for it because I hadn't known what Shopify was. Could have, would have, should have. It wasn't yeah, even Shopify. This was um, Big Cartel. Do you yeah, Big, Big Cartel. <laughs> this, this was this was Big Cartel. It's what like bands used to sell merch on. Exactly. Um, had I known about Shopify ads back then, maybe it would have been a different story. Then wanted to move into more like custom clothing. So actually started getting um, some like custom bamboo clothing made in China all yeah, I did was ballsy. go to Urban Outfitters find some shapes I liked sent them off to the factory in China said can you replicate these in bamboo yeah. material again so like 17 
ordered a shit ton of stock, sold like none of it because didn't understand advertising, didn't understand marketing. Then started an events business where we bought some cheap 12 foot, not 12 foot, maybe like 24 foot by however long marquee on eBay, put it on Gumtree that we'll drive to you, set up a marquee for the night, um, did about three events. And then on the third event, it essentially blew over in the wind in the middle of the night while there was a while while someone was having a 40th while some someone was having a 40th birthday party soaked did she yeah Yeah. um so lots of different things there's there's probably six or seven others and i tried affiliate marketing i tried loads of things but then as i was leaving school uh final year of sick form felt like we were being funneled by all of our all of my teachers to to go to university and I was very fortunate yeah funneled yeah it's a good use of the word yeah absolutely I'm back to again referring back to my parents and my family I was never there was never any pressure from them to go to university no Mm. one in my family still to this day no one in my family has ever been to university interesting Um, not even my sister and final year yeah decided create a couple brands really had the itch for business really wanted to do something and sort of just never made sense to me. There's like, right, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm not, definitely want to do something on my own. It just doesn't make sense to me to spend the next three, four years at university. If I'm going to do something, it's going to be entrepreneurship related, business related. A couple of my best friends went to do an entrepreneurship degree, which just the irony. me never made sense. Um, and so came across, saw on Facebook one day, a Facebook ad for a free event to learn about property at what was the, um, I want to forget the name of it, but uh, the Cumberland Hotel in London, now the Hard Rock Hotel in the conference, not conference room, the sort of event space at the bottom of the hotel, mm. um, where I guess I came across. I met the first guy that taught me property who's now got a couple of bankruptcy cases and owes a lot of investors money so I'm not going to mention his name I think and, I know who it is um, maybe yeah we'll, well talk maybe about it's it. not it's probably the only one I've heard of but <laughs> there's a few um, but yeah went on that went to the free event then ended up getting sold into the um, the three day event actually did that a few times and I knew nothing about property and this is a big misconception people have is that obviously grown up in a family of estate agents. My dad's got an estate agency business, like I mentioned, which is related to property. I still knew nothing about property. Didn't know what a mortgage mm-hmm. was or didn't really know how it worked. Didn't understand really anything. And so it was just so overwhelming for me. Um, started working as an estate agent, um, but where I did it differently was I worked as a completely commission-only self-employed agent. So I only got paid commission from houses that I sold. Was that on your dad's company or no? Um, yeah, that was at first under his brand um, and then moved away sort of as soon as I could from mm. that. I actually didn't make much money doing that, to be honest, um, but made enough to, to scrape a small pot of cash together. Um, and yeah, did my first property deal, which was literally buying a two-bedroom terraced house in Coventry Um with a tiny deposit and like borrowing money, saving up money, a couple credit cards, loans from whoever I could to do the refurb and then sell it for a profit all responsibly. I wasn't taking money out that I, you know, I mm. knew the deal was, was strong enough that this money I was borrowing, I could pay back, but did that, did another one, did another one, did another one and begin to stack up quite a significant cash pot doing that. 
and um, carried on doing that. Moved down to London to work in North London as an again self employed commission only agent, thinking much more expensive house prices. Where where I was operating in the Midlands, the average house price I was sort of working on was five six hundred thousand pounds. Then moved to mm. London, two two and a half million pounds. So higher commissions higher fees, therefore higher commissions for me. Did it the exact, the complete wrong time, couldn't have picked a worse time. The market was on his ass, nothing was selling. I'd taken an apartment in London um, that was pretty expensive rent, which I was splitting my girlfriend at the time. We then broke up, so then took over paying all of the rent, wasn't making any money. And then that cash pot was- When was this? Was this before I met you? Um, this would have on been- On nearabouts then? No, this would have been before I first met you. Um, so that was like April, May, 2019. Yeah, this was this was sort of yeah end of 2018 actually, and yeah, um, it was a bit of a difficult one for me because decided to step out of that industry altogether. Went from you know living in London, cool job, but just had to face the fact it wasn't really working. Moved back home with my parents, and not so much starting from scratch, but it's like okay, well, I've got to make myself. Mm. Um, I've got I've got to come back and, and do something here and just really try to look at the whole picture was like where do I want to go like I definitely property want to build a big property company what does that look like and then boiled things down to sort of maybe first principles is the right way to say it but well, well I need sort of a cash flow business because I need cash flow coming yeah. in and then I need that sort of wealth building vehicle which me was property and and um, at the time i I documented a lot of what I was doing on social media, um, all the property deals on Instagram every day, updates. And I was just getting flooded with messages from people my age, um, or 18, 19, 20 years old at the time saying, love what you're doing. Can you please just tell me what you're doing and and Mm. tell me what you know? And for the first probably six, 12 months, but we had 12 months, I'd just tell people as well, oh, this is who I learned from. Go speak to them. They'll teach you everything. And I kept getting pushback from that because the problem back then, and it is changing, all the educators in the property space were 50 years old, overweight, lost all their hair, yeah. not and really just not that inspiring for a young 19, 20 year old kid, just because just not relatable. And yeah. they'd always say to me, yeah, but Tyler, I want to, I want to learn from you. I want to just, I just want to spend two, three hours with you. I want to work for you for free. I want to shadow you. I just want to spend a day with you, all these things. And I thought, okay, well, there's obviously a demand here. And mm. I'll be the first one. I, I didn't know everything back then, still do not know everything back now. And it's almost like the more you learn, the more you realize you don't, the more you learn, the more you realize yeah, you don't paradox. actually know. So I booked this route at this office space in Birmingham. I think there was 10 seats, maybe, yeah, 10 seats. And I said, look, if you just a hundred pound a seat, just come along and I'll just spend a day with you just talking through the deals I'm working on what I know, the basics of property and just on Instagram, I had like probably a thousand followers and mm. sold out and did that. And I thought, okay, that's a good proof of concept. And by this point, I'd actually reinvested a lot of my money back into education. I'd go to these property courses. I then flip a house, make some cash and think, right, I want to continue to further my knowledge. And to some people, I think to actually 99% of people, they just they probably don't understand this, but to us, it's probably common sense. But if I want to learn a skill or get better at a skill, all I want to do is find someone that's doing it and just 
pay that pay to learn from them. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, and and that's one thing I still do massively now. So I was essentially just had spent thousands and thousands on my own education, implemented it, learned from it, made mistakes, also learned from, and then was just sharing a little bit of what I knew, wasn't charging much for it. And then, yeah, sort of formalized a bit of an education company as my knowledge grew, as my property business grew, began to teach more and more and more. And then it's become sort of a really good cash flow vehicle. But the main driver behind it as well is it allows me to build an audience Mm. because when you can spend money on Facebook ads, YouTube ads, Instagram ads, creating content, and that's profitable because on the back end, you're then offering people the option to further their training and, and buy, yeah. buy training from you. But that audience you've then built, you can also raise money from and use that investment to sort of further fund property deals, which one thing I, I teach in the property space it's one of like the core principles is that you can only get so far using your own cash yeah if you want to scale your property business if you want to go further you need to be raising money and social media is the number one way to do that you've only got to look at what grant cardone is doing in the u.s he's raised at 600 million from instagram facebook at this point Mm. purely from just accredited investors and yeah we sort of follow that model now we're we're always seeking investment for future property projects and that's essentially my business in a nutshell yeah well to be fair firstly that's the best answer to what do you do okay in well out of the three episodes (laughs) of film prior to this but yeah that that, fuck yeah that's quite interesting i didn't know a lot of that actually um there's loads of way i was trying to cut in at loads of points um but there's so many questions off the back of that. One point I was going to pick up on, and I'm probably similar to be fair, it's like Mm -hmm. when you said at the start, you came from like what I would just call a middle-class background. So, you know, your parents weren't fucking multimillionaires or whatever. Obviously Mm -hmm. in your case, it was in property. I mean, but obviously, yeah, I don't think you were going to school in helicopters or whatever, but obviously you didn't come from a councillor. It's kind of similar with me. I would say I came from a middle-class background. Mum was a nurse, dad is an architect or whatever, something like that. But it, but in my case, it wasn't entrepreneurial. But anyway, the point is, I've read about this a bit, to be fair. It's like people say sometimes if you come from like a comfortable, you know, it's not that shit. Like you haven't really got a sob story. Like everyone's got their own issues or whatever, but like you had fucking food on the table, etc people say that is potentially like the hardest place to come from because it's like and maybe you experience it with friends or whatever like there's no real motivation other than like intrinsic inside you like mm-hmm. you don't need to go and start a business and you know risk all this money and time etc because you could just get a fucking job and do coke every weekend like all the other blokes that are in their <laughs> early 20s and go get a nine-to-five not everyone but some people it's it's a good point. It's something I I think a lot about, and it's very easy to discredit someone based on their upbringing if they've sort of had a good upbringing. And yeah, I've I've had comments made at me in the past saying, "Oh, yeah, well, you've only been able to do that because your parents are in, in property and whatever." And obviously, they've not seen all the work that's gone in behind mm. the scenes, and and it's sort of um, not necessarily true. But you know, I'll be the first to admit that there's no way I'd be where I am right now without the help and support and, and the belief my parents have had in me and um, always been there to offer me guidance. But, um, you know, I never want to discredit all the work that I've put in over the years. 
and the risks I've taken because I could have very easily taken a much more comfortable route. And it's a good point you mentioned actually, and I've talked about this amongst other friends within our within our friendship circle because there's a couple others that have come from a place where maybe their childhood didn't have as much and entrepreneurship was that escape from that. It was that ability to sort of get out of um, that scarcity that they, they grew up in. But I I always try and figure out and assess and it's an ongoing process. I have my own mind of why I'm wired this way. And it could either be maybe a genetic thing in a sense I'm just wired in this way that maybe whether it's ego, whatever, mm. that has made me this hyper-competitive individual that constantly wants more and wants to grow rather than just settle. Um, but I don't know. But, you know, at the same time, another um, the other side of the argument is I've got friends that, and I've had this conversation with them that I went to school with and we have had the exact same upbringing as in yeah. their family do the exact same thing same sort of um, level of wealth or whatever, same education, same access to the same resources Mm. and same age, grow up in the same place, same friendship circle. And they're same age as me right now and and don't really have much going on in their life, unemployed, in and out of jobs, whatever, whatever. And that's not to discredit them. It's the, obviously they've had the exact same. Essentially, there's there's no excuse, and it's like, well, why did why's one ended up down that path? Why have I gone down this path? And so ultimately, it comes down to just you can have the best upbringing, the worst upbringing. I think there has to be that something else that yeah. But another thing, and, and not to get too deep straight away, get is deep. is good. that. Although anyone that sort of maybe listening to this uh, that knows knows my family, my my dad no doubt will probably share this on his Facebook because he shares everything. More views from Father um, Newman. Thank so, you very much. And he'll be listening to this like he listens to every, every piece of content that ever goes out about me. Um, he's almost like my PR manager that has to listen to everything. But um, yeah. he's he's quite well known within within the town that I grew up in because he's been an estate agent there for thirty four. 30 or 40 years 30 years I'm not going to age him that much it's not 70 years 90 years old (laughs) for for, for 30 years and when you're an estate agent where you're literally out every day meeting people a lot of people know who you are and he's been very aggressive with his advertising in that town and he is and he he tells me the mistake he made is he's become a bit of a a big fish in a small pond yeah Um, and even just the other day I didn't tell him this but I got into I got the train up on Monday, I think it was, or no, Tuesday to rugby and got at the train station, got in the taxi outside rugby station, get in the taxi and the taxi driver's like, I recognize you from somewhere. I was like, I, 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 I don't know you, mate, honestly. He said, no, 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 no. I know your dad, Sean. And I was like, okay. And it was actually always very often the case that growing up, a lot of people just knew me as um, then oh, I was like, I know your dad, I know your dad, I know your dad, yeah. and I think there was there was this fire inside of me that actually is like, well, actually, I kind of want to, and this is a competitive side of me, um, make a name for myself and uh, go beyond that and not just be known as, oh, Sean's son. Yeah. Um, so that's that's not a main driver. That's just a little side note. Um, but yeah. Yeah, to be, that's interesting. To be fair, I genuinely think that 
people that pursue entrepreneurship properly and aren't just doing it for a fucking six months because it's cool are basically ill to some extent like oh, I think it's sure. a mental health condition <laughs> like I mean I probably spoke about it on previous well probably not that much but yeah I, well everyone's different but I think to an, like I've always thought that I was fucking mentally ill <laughs> in many ways but like entrepreneurship is probably either the cause or the root of it and probably both like well we speak about diminishing returns right yeah as in there's a level of income there's a level of wealth where beyond that there's diminishing returns and we're probably way past that point and it's like well, why do we maybe not me in the past year but <laughs> I've definitely experienced yeah the level of that and then, and then yeah I know what you're saying so but going back to your story and if people haven't want to find out episode more one, episode bitch. one you were at a point last year where you were bringing in seven figures a month revenue and there is the argument to say that why why do you why do you even need to keep growing past that point why do you even need to keep growing once, once you're at 100 grand a month because after that it's more complexity there's more stress bigger payroll bigger risks and you've got to be a little bit ill yeah to be fair fuck like that is like a chilling point because I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is it's like going a bit, bit of a tangent but I won't say his name I want to get him on the podcast but I don't know if he wants to be public and he is like maybe two years older than me like a year older than me we used to have an office together for like six months and he's basically about to sell his business for millions of pounds and he's like young and mm-hmm. he'll never have to work again and I had a conversation with him, probably wasn't a conversation, it was a fucking DM back and forth, ironically. But, um, and I was saying what I think to be true about myself is that even if I had a hundred million quid, I'd start the next business because it's not about the money. And he was saying, nah, for me, it's just, I want to make, I don't know, fucking, you know, five, 10 million so I never have to work again. And then I'm just going to do what the fuck I want. Like, I think, I think he mentioned like go surfing or whatever, but, and maybe because I'm not in the same position as him with that exit pending, or because it's just different people but I just said to him now I genuinely think mm-hmm. even if I had if I exited for 100 million quid now which I'm not doing but I'd like to do in the next like five years I think I'd still get up within like the next month and start the next thing because of course. yeah I, I actually I think of course I want to make loads of money I want to have nice cars and shit and I've experienced that and I've lost it to an extent which is probably mm-hmm. quite unique for my age but then it's also made me think the blessing of that was like ah fuck I actually just like the game yeah like I actually do it is just a love of the game and the game means like, it's you know, a toxic the, the process of trying it's toxic <laughs> like, the, and the game of entrepreneurship not the game of playing girls on Instagram which I've been out of for the past year um <laughs> they are similar I suppose in ways but <laughs> also toxic yeah the game of just like creating stuff whether it's a fucking podcast which is probably partly where I started this or mm-hmm. A brand like I'm working on a new brand right now, which mentioned in the past episode. But yeah, just the game, knowing that it's going to be wild ups and downs, and you know, if you can't, I guess most people, because they're wired differently, or and in many ways, I wish I was wired like that. I'm just happy doing something more simple or whatever, and it's not better or worse, but it's just different. 
and if you can't yeah i suppose if you can't handle the heat of entrepreneurship which in my mind is just the wild ups and downs like i feel like it's made me fucking bipolar to be honest the pursuit of entrepreneurship it definitely affects your personality and the like genuine pursuit of it not the i'm going to pretend i'm interested in e-commerce and do it for six months Mm -hmm. like the just i can't do anything else i would rather throw myself off a cliff than have a nine to five relentless pursuit that's how i actually feel Mm-hmm. Like I would I'd actually rather be homeless than have a nine to five. And, and as everyone, long as I was in a position to pursue what I wanted to make. And that's an interesting uh, point because all entrepreneurs are wired slightly months, differently. There are there are some that literally just want a lifestyle business. Yeah. You go to Bali. There's people there that have ecom dropshipping businesses that are happy making, touching six figures a year. But yeah. they've got no team. They can probably put in two hours of work a day max, and live an amazing lifestyle on the beach in Bali. Then there's those that want to get that exit, make a sum of cash, and then they're done. And then there's just the the savage, mentally ill people like ourselves that... Yeah, I, I think don't I'm think... that, having thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had that big exit to decide yet, but I, I don't know, like... I've I think you'd know at this done point. Done the Bali, like, making, mm-hmm. you know, 100, 200 grand on a laptop. Yeah, and I'm, there's definitely a lot to be said for that by the way I think that's fucking great from, like, I think that's yeah. so attainable for 99% of people if they just realise and it's probably the healthiest route without him in the last episode but yeah I just, I just feel like I'm, I've, I don't know I mean maybe if someone gave me 50 million quid I'd never work, never start another business again but like what would I do like, hypothetically I don't know and, and it's quite an interesting conversation to have with yourself like if you know if I got unlimited money tomorrow so to speak you know whatever mm-hmm. 10 million plus is probably effectively that in many ways or, or more but like yeah if I never had to think about money again what would I do and then like the reality is I'd probably start another econ brand or a fucking of podcast and mm-hmm. probably actually do what I'm doing now probably just have a Cullinan and a fucking SVJ roadster downstairs which I don't currently and a six studio for the podcast yeah and a six studio and well this is a six studio three girls bring yeah. me drinks while we record yeah. and 17 Richard Mills with a custom dial but you're gonna you're gonna day, clip this in five years time when you've got <laughs> when you've got that. Yeah, fuck you've tangent on that's a pretty deep subject, but yeah, I think I'd probably be doing something similar. I'd just yeah, probably I don't know. I'd definitely have more cars and, and watches. It's a constant pursuit and nothing will ever be enough and you just constantly want to get to the next level. It's same with every goal we've ever had. You wanna to get to you want to get your business to 10 grand a month then you want to get 25 then to 50 then 100 then 200 then 500 and it's you're, it's, you're never not happy you're just never satisfied and you constantly want more and I think that's just why I think that's just us as humans with an ego and not the negative connotation of the word but just mm. hype, hyper competitiveness that never wants to stop and it's it's no different to you look at the, some of the, the top athletes in the world and playing at the highest level within their within their sport. They are just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to the point that it's not even healthy. But it's just the way some humans are wired. You look at people like Elon or um, these billionaires that just put themselves through. Like the more money they get, like Elon especially, the more obviously the wealth he's got, but he's still putting himself through probably ridiculous amounts of stress. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I d- definitely don't think I'm on his psychological level of damage and and, no. and, and ability. I, I wish I was, but mm-hmm. yeah, fuck. Like he's a a real Iron Man, <laughs> and 
Yeah, there's some fun. This is I don't know where the fucking going with this. I'll try and bring it back to the topic in a minute. But I remember something Gary V said. It was quite funny. Like, what was it? Like everyone talks about, and I'll come on to the reason I'm saying this in a minute. But like, everyone talks about wanting to be like the next Elon Musk until there's a fucking until they want to go skiing for a week. It was, it was something like that. <laughs> yeah. Gary V said, and it was so true. And because I acknowledge, to be fair, I don't think I'm on that like psycho billionaire level where. I fucking like will do deals at 4am in the morning and I don't know you read about people like Philip Green or you know um, bloody Topshop Don controversial character and who's the Mike Ashley and so on you read about and like you read about guys like that whether it's trivial or not and you know they're up at 4am doing these deals and they're fucking billionaires I don't think I'm necessarily on that level well I mean I'm certainly not on that level financially but I don't know if I'm on that level of chaos mm-hmm. but I, I definitely know that I'm not on the level where if I sold a business in the next few years, like in my twenties still, I just want to go and chill and write books. I, th- I think I definitely want to try and go bigger. Like I was listening to Steve Bartlett's podcast the other day with the founder of Klarna and that got me fucking gassed. And I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I, I've always thought like... Because what's that? What's, what's it say that it's like 36 billion or something? I think 45. 45 so his billion. like on paper net worth was like... 4 billion or whatever but Mm -hmm. what I found quite interesting about that was I say he only started the business I think he was like I don't want to get my facts wrong I think he was like 30 when he started the business which I I guess still young but I guess like I'm thinking fuck I'm done at 25 but like no he he hadn't started the business until 5 years older than I am and I'm thinking Mm -hmm. yeah maybe if I get this exit on e-com stuff then I don't know hypothetically maybe when I'm in my 30s or whatever I'd want to try and go for like the fucking Silicon Valley, like that Drake and Future song, like go go to Silicon, try and get our billions on or something, whatever it is. Okay, there's there's some lyric. It's in that 2015 album. I think it's Diamonds Dancing or whatever. It's the song. Yeah, and I I just thought, mate, yeah. I guess firstly it made me think, fuck, there's a long road ahead. But secondly, it made me think, yeah, it'd be sick to try and do something like that. And then thirdly, I thought, oh shit, like if I'd sold, you know, sold out by then, which I hope I'd have done in an ecom respect maybe I'll try and go make some mad fintech thing or like make the next Shopify and fucking become a billionaire. Just not because you need the money, just because it'd be fucking cool. I think the the best way to look at it is to us, entrepreneurship business is a game. It's not actually about the money in terms of what the money allows us to do because there is a certain level of wealth and, and income and cash where you've got all of your personal financial needs covered once you, you you get a nice car you get a nice apartment that's it you don't really need much more anything else is just mm. shiny objects but the money the financials are just one of the it's probably the main metric of measuring your success in the game not that money is a measure of success but in the game of business and entrepreneurship you get an exit yeah. for 50 million it's like okay cool that was hard but let's see if I can go for two fifty a billion with what I do in real estate. You know, you do you do a deal. There was only so many houses I could do, which were putting a new kitchen, a new bathroom in, making twenty five, thirty, forty thousand pound a pop. Before you just get sick of that and think, well, actually, I want to. Okay, what's what's the next step I can get up to now? And we're at a point now where we're building multi million pound projects, and we've actually just completed on one this week to, to build 17 houses um, and that's like a um, it's just over 6 million pound project and then we've got stuff in the pipeline that's 10 to 15 million and then stuff further away that we're taking through planning that's going to be building in the tens of millions and it's just it's just that 
constant pursuit and can you do bigger can you do more and just pushing and testing yourself um and it is just a game yeah fuck let me ask a question then to bring it back to I guess relevant to the general property topic and we'll go on another tangent soon I'm sure so and then I'm going to go get more wine because I didn't fucking bring it over here but I'll do that (laughs) while you're speaking um you mentioned like and this is a part I literally know nothing about so excuse my ignorance so you said you made a little money like a bit of money whatever in working a job on commission in real estate etc etc I guess two part question firstly like is 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 commission standard for everyone like in working in um you know like real estate um estate agencies because I, I, I thought maybe if you know you're in the younger side or whatever you mm-hmm. just go on i don't know 25 grand salary and that's it so firstly like on the commission side and then secondly how how much money did you need to do the first deal and like how much of it was your own etc and how did that yeah. work so i'm gonna jump off camera for a second um so without boring the viewers to death discussing the estate agency industry in too much detail the estate agency space in the UK is embarrassingly far behind the rest of the world so if you look at the US and Australia and even countries like South Africa for example but specifically US and Australia if everyone's ever watched Million Dollar Listing they agents are they earn a lot more money they get paid higher commissions and it's just more of a respected job in the uk and it's changing the industry is going through a huge shift a huge transition but in the past and still to this day estate agents are looked upon as if they're they're liars they're thieves they can't be trusted it's just not a respected job to work and they're like car salesmen in fact probably worse than car salesmen that is true and um and that's because again, without going into too much detail, they're not paid that much money. Um, and so th- there's no barriers to entry. And so what that does, that attracts the wrong people to the industry. And there is a shift going on in the UK right now with plenty of companies. Um, and I think it is one of the best opportunities actually for, for young people to make a good income right now is more and more of these companies are offering agency option to go essentially self-employed probably the wrong word but partner with them and they're essentially commission only so how it work typically let's say you work for one of the main estate entity companies on the under the countrywide umbrella so like a connell's for example you'd get on a 15 grand a year basic and you'd be paid seven percent of the fee income and that fee income mm. could be one to two percent maybe more um well probably not more that's seven percent uh, of the fee income you bring in directly or the whole company um because that sounds a lot no so let's say you sell a house for £300,000 yeah and the the commission the company is charged to broker that deal is 1% so that business brings in three grand, one yeah. percent of 300 then of that three grand, you get like 7% so it's like a few less than a few hundred quid 200 quid whatever yeah um and so really, you know, they're not working away with that much money unless they work their way up over the years where they become a branch manager and they can make maybe 50 grand a year. But now it's commission only. So how it works is, and it's completely changed since even I was doing it. So when I was a self-employed mm. agent, I was only making um, 40% of the fee income. So let's say 
I sold a house, £500,000 um, or £250,000. Fee was two and a half grand. I'd get 40%. I'd get a grand. Yeah. And you'd quickly do the maths and you think, well, you do one, two, three, four of those a month. Um, obviously, that's harder said than done. Um, easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now you can get up to 70% of the fee income. And especially if you're targeting the higher end properties, there's... Um, you know, you sell a five hundred thousand pound house. You charge two percent. It's ten grand. You get seventy percent of that. You can get seven grand for selling one house. Obviously, you've got to do it right. But there are agents now I'm aware of that are making twenty, fifty. I even heard of, and I actually know him personally. Took home a hundred thousand pounds in commissions in one month. I think I know selling who you're speaking of. Uh, you won't actually. Well, maybe. Oh, okay, maybe not. Okay, um, you know who I think I'm. I think you're thinking of, and I'd like to hear him on the podcast. Because um, I know nothing about property. Yeah, and so that's that's the massive transition that the estate agency industry is going through right now. It's getting more and more typical, and a lot of agents are making that jump into going commission only, and they're making a lot more money, which is good for everyone. It's good for the agents to make more money. It's also better for buyers and sellers of properties because it's they're working with higher quality salespeople that have got their best interests at heart. They can actually afford to. Sp- dedicate the time and effort to get providing mm. a good service rather than an agent at Connell's who's got 40 houses on the books. He's got to try and service 40 different clients to actually make a decent income. Whereas now they can, an agent can just represent two, three, four clients a month, give them world-class service and make more money doing that. So it's a win-win for everyone. Um, so yes, yeah, so, sorry. Uh, can I ask a two part question? I want to cancel the second part of the question for okay. now because this is interesting because I didn't know any of this shit. And yeah, sorry to cut you off, but like I just had a thought. So on Instagram, I don't know if you follow this guy. Mm-hmm. His username is Super Prime. Sorry, I think it's a bloke yeah, called uh, Trevor, Trevor Trevor Kearney. I'm probably not yeah. saying it correctly, but I, 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 I don't know. He's the only property guy other than you, and well, he's certainly the only estate agent, so to speak, mm-hmm. that I follow on Instagram. And I, I don't know why. I, I mean, well, he's Super Prime. Sorry, you know, do the fucking maths. He sells property over five million, which I think is the term super prime over five million quid mm-hmm. and I just find it fascinating because well firstly he just he clearly knows what the fuck he's talking about and but secondly he shows so much which most people I feel like particularly in that part of the market would never show and it got me really interested and I started to think geez if I wasn't an entrepreneur I reckon working in super prime property selling mm-hmm. these fuck off houses would be amazing because two things first you get to go in all of them do the viewings and it's sick like you basically get to live in a 15,000 square foot house apart from sleep there every day showing people them but secondly the network you would get dealing with those ultra high net worth individuals who like not in every case but generally speaking they've probably got quite an interesting story and you know if they're self-made whatever um but yeah what was the point i was trying to make i suppose like how would you even like if you pursued a state agency like selling houses how would you like is there a path to going into like super prime? Cause obviously like, so, like, and, and, and secondly, like how much commission are they, are they making? Cause this guy's driving like a supercar. It's on his Instagram and stuff. Um, so he must be doing yeah, well. I, I don't know Trevor personally. I, I know of him and he works under Savills, I yeah, believe. Yeah. And Savills, the Knight Frank, those old boys that have, you know, those companies are hundreds of years old. They are still the traditional methods. So, Trevor, maybe he's a partner now of Savills in that particular brand, so he's taken home a little bit more. But if he was commission only, he would probably quadruple his income overnight. Um, but mm. it's 
probably doesn't want to leave Savills. Savills are very traditional, stuck in their ways. I'm sure at some point they'll realise they need to transition their business model. And um, to answer your question, how to go down that route? So that's a route I, I followed. I When I was working as an agent, I just wanted to follow the money and I was constantly thinking, well, how can I, how can I make more money? Well, if I'm selling, started off selling, the first thing I ever sold was like a... I think it was sixty-five or seventy thousand pound one-bedroom apartment in mm. Rugby, which was just run down. I think I made a few hundred pounds commission off that, and I was like, "How can I make more money?" Well, one option is I try and sell more houses. That yeah. means you know working longer hours, working harder, working more, and probably you know, not the best route. Or I could sell more expensive houses, and or I could increase the fee that I charge the seller obviously to increase my prices increase my fee I have to obviously increase the value that I'm providing as well and I chose to go you know do both and so I started focusing on the upper quarter of the market which was at the start sort of £500,000 plus yeah in the Coventry area and I increased my fees to like 2% 2.5% plus VAT so 3% which when my competitors were charging 1% half a percent Purple Bricks, his yeah. online agents were charging a few hundred pounds. Um, but I knew that the value I was providing justified that. And when you think you're competing against an agent that's charging half the price, a quarter of the price, well, actually, if oh, i sorry, are you setting that price as a freelancer, effectively? Essentially, as a freelancer. Work? So so under the under the company I was working for, I could then, um, I literally was had access to all the marketing materials and the ability to then... Um, because ultimately what an agent what what a vendor a seller of a property is paying for when they instruct saying this in the present tense when they would instruct me is one I understood property marketing like nobody else mm. and I knew um, how to get as many eyeballs on the property as possible I knew how to price the pricing strategies and the best pricing strategies I knew essentially that in order to get the best price because that was the ultimate outcome a property yes is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it but it's worth different amounts to different people and essentially you want to find that one person that's willing to pay more money than anyone else for that particular house and squeeze every last penny out of them yeah. that's my service to the seller if someone's instruct was instructing me to sell the house that would that's what I would do and I knew that in order to do that, you had to create what I'd call a competitive environment, which means essentially we need people competing over this house. We need mm. to have the upper hand in the negotiation. I want two, three, four, five people, sometimes even more, making offers, competing on the offers, and we're going to work the offers up and find the person that's willing to pay more money for this house than anybody else. If anyone thinks that's unethical, well, you don't have. You can find someone that's going to sell your house for a lower price. But yeah, um, and so that's how I justify the higher fees. And I had the case studies to back it up. And I could. I sold a lot of properties that other agents failed to sell. And I knew how to do that with the correct pricing strategies by staging properties properly, by presenting them properly with proper photography, floor plans, brochures, getting them out there on um, all the different places you could think of, and. Once you build up a bit of a track record, it was easy to charge those fees. And so that's basically what I did. So to answer your question in a nutshell, how would someone as an estate agent look to get into the sort of super prime world? It's one, understand property marketing, understand the proper pricing strategies, understand how to create a competitive environment and, and negotiate effectively to essentially mm. extract the best offers 
out of a client and then how to progress that agreed sale through to exchange of contracts and completion. Because if anyone's bought or sold a house, getting it sold or getting a sale agreed is, is one part. Actually then getting that legal transaction through with the solicitors yeah. is like an uphill battle and that's 70% of the work. And so if you find an agent that has most of the legal work prepared at the point of agreeing the sale, the rest is a breeze and it's just a much, much, much more... Um, mm. happier process for all parties involved but that's a whole two hour conversation that yeah, I could get very Christ. passionate about now this is interesting I genuinely did not fucking know any of this shit um, which is part of why I wanted to start the podcast so I could force intelligent people to sit down and <laughs> basically teach me their shit on camera and then I can eventually monetize the fuck out of this podcast and no, I'm joking maybe pending <laughs> but yeah like super I actually I've said this before like I don't know who to but if I wasn't doing what I'm doing and mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't do it but like if I, I feel like if I wasn't an entrepreneur I'd either want to sell really expensive houses or really expensive cars like see either super prime property yeah. or super cars I always found there's a guy called Dean who sold me my R8 one of the nicest guys ever he's probably not watching this called Dean Bartle I used to work at Redline Supercars you know now he's DMB isn't he yeah DMB collection yeah um, he's one, genuinely one of the nicest guys ever I'm not just saying that like I don't know him that well but like he's the sort of guy where I'm just giving him a bit of a plug here. If I text him now, a year and a half after buying a car of him, he'd know who I was and call me for like 10 minutes. At 20 to 8. Yeah, but yeah. no, genuinely, probably even now. Um, and he's a northern, northerner. Um, but anyway, the point was, I, I, I was always fascinated by... Fascinated? Yeah, probably was. Like when I was like buying cars back in the day, because I went through a bunch of them, like being at the garages, I used to want to spend so long there because I just liked the environment. I, mm-hmm. I'm not remotely... I haven't viewed fucking super prime properties but because I think you probably have to I don't know show proof of funds or something to do that but I was actually saying this this is just a slight tangent again but I was saying I think I was saying to Fred like I don't know sometime in the past could we just arrange a viewing on a 15 million pound house in Wentworth Estate because like surely they'd want proof of funds or something um, like different do you have agents, any experience with that how does that yeah, work yeah different agents will have different processes um, and at that sort of level, yes, they're probably they're, they're going to be asking for yeah, for, for, sure. for proof of funds. All um, the boys rock up in a fucking Citroen Picasso. <laughs> but then, but then that's that's at the agent's discretion to decide whether they want to allocate the time mm. or not. Me, I'd always qualify depending on the price point, qualify the buyers and um, the amount of times. For example, one of the the marketing strategies I'd, I'd use to sell a house is like an open house, which is basically yeah. we open the house up on a Saturday, 11 o'clock to 1 Sounds p.m. Sounds very American. And we have 15, 20 parties booked in to view the house and they all can just view it within that time frame, which means I don't have to go drive to the house, get the house ready, turn yeah. all the lights on, open all the curtains 20 different times um, on different days. Um, and on an open house, when there's 20 people there, if you're interested, if there's only one person interested in buying that house, but they see, fuck, there's 19 other people here viewing this house. When they come to make me an offer and I say, look, you saw how many other people are interested. You need to increase your offer. They're going to believe me and they're going to increase yeah. it. Um, but also doing the open house means I wouldn't waste my time driving 30 minutes across town to show around a house to someone that's actually got no money is a waste of my time. And I experienced... And I experienced both sides. I experienced people that, that looked like they had cash and then absolutely didn't have a penny to their name and were just wasting my time. Mm. I also had people that, that in the nicest possible way, you'd look at them and think, why on earth did I agree to show this tramp around this house? 
who's yeah, got one way to put it no teeth left it's turned up in in tracksuits and a t-shirt that's got rips in it and shoes that are falling apart and genuinely looks like they've just come off the street mm. but then they tell me and I find out that they've just sold their company for an eight figure sum and they're looking for a house for them and their 12 different kids so <laughs> yeah. um yeah so there's it, a lesson it, there. yeah there's a lesson there and you you learn very quickly not to judge people but at that sort of level yes you 15 million probably even 10 million 5 million plus they're going to be qualifying their buyers and asking for proof of funds but that's yeah. also a simple photoshop job as well which oh, is sure. obviously fraud but even then I've it's I've, funny because <laughs> I just do this shit because I just find it funny like, I always mm-hmm. go on right move like also trader and right move like I've probably spent too much time on that probably less in the past few months because I was just like fuck looking at cars that I'm not going to buy for at least the next year but I was on right move like a month ago probably shouldn't even say this but um, I, I went, it was like a house called Gro- Grosvenor House Grosvenor mm-hmm. I don't know the fuck you said that um, it was actually a house that I saw from this super prime guy and it was on the market for 15 million quid thereabouts like 15,000 square feet brand new build fucking bougiest shit you've ever seen like St George's Hill, whatever. Oh, yeah. And I just got on the live chat and I just started saying, can I arrange a viewing on this? And I think it was like an actual person, not a bot, because like obviously having a person on them, mm-hmm. if someone potentially buys something, like the ROI on that person at £10 an hour or whatever, it's probably worth it rather than a bot. And I was like back and forth with them for like 15 minutes and then like, I was like, can I arrange a viewing? Blah, blah, blah. They said... And I was using really like blunt language, like trying to pretend I was like old and didn't know how to type. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just funny because yeah, then then they're like, "Can you send proof of funds to this email address?" Blah blah blah. And then I was like, "Okay, fine. I'm not actually going to rock up, but it would be fucking hilarious to do so. Yeah. Just get all the boys rock up to, to a 15 million pound house. Like that would be a. I don't know why no YouTuber with the ridiculous shit a lot of YouTubers have the balls to do have done that yet. Like arranging. In fact, that's a video to anyone that's watching that is a YouTuber. Probably not yet. Make a video going to the most expensive houses in the country. And just see if you can wing a viewing and just rock up in like, I don't know, a fucking pedalo or something. <laughs> or yeah, like a golf cart. To be fair, arranging the view would not, would not be that difficult. It'd be, if they asked for proof of funds, you could just, even then, asking just for Go proof. on Google Images, like there'll be a bank statement somewhere. Yeah, of course. Or just go on your own bank statement and screenshot it and then move some numbers yeah, around. Yeah, probably shouldn't say that, but yeah, um, it's probably quite easy to do. Of course, it's easy to do, and obviously, it's not the right thing to do, and you don't want to be wasting people's time. But or just say that you've got a really rich dad and sound like a cunt, and you probably fit yeah, that stereotype. And a proof of funds is always very difficult because sometimes people say, "Well, actually, my my sale of my business is going through, so actually, li- liquid cash it's pending, mm-hmm. or um, it's proceeds from the sale of their." previous property or the current property they're living in and so it's not always cash in the bank proof of funds some personal reasons i don't want to share my yeah and sometimes it's they'll have to get a letter from the accountant or their solicitor or Mm. whatever but you can you can very you've got an obligation to the seller that you're representing to make sure you're not bringing the wrong people around but um fucking hell i actually want to try that now get all the boys and we like rent well not even rent we'll just use like some shitty car that one of us has got I think <laughs> Fred's got a, Fred could have a Rolls Royce but I think drive some like 2005 Polo just rock up in that to like yeah. some 15 million pound house and just see what happens it'd be fucking hilarious and then cop it as well actually buy the house yeah just, just, just split it between the boys or just wait until someone gets a massive exit and pay for it cash <laughs> that would be interesting actually like being in a position to actually buy that but then intentionally rocking up to a viewing or, or, or like a first viewing, second viewing, whatever, just like looking 
as opposite as they might expect as possible i i've experienced it i've had people buy houses off me where on first impression i thought mm, there's no chance yeah. and and yeah you have to catch yourself you can't judge people for it but but then i've also had people that are actual actual scam artists and come looking like a tramp convince me they've got money convinced also the seller they've got money and then turns out they are actually a convicted fraudster ex-convicted fraudster with money or without money without money um, but then i guess you can't buy the house you can't do you know you can't no no they don't and only gets, but, but they get so they actually get they instruct the solicitors they do all the legal work and then it gets to the point and they just disappear in fact i had one once is that just like um some weird this is an interesting story fetish it, it, yeah it's uh maybe a, a kind of delusion i'm not too sure but there was th- this quite fun. wasn't a house i was representing but it was within within the network and people i worked with there was this um this developer near me this builder that we knew and i actually ended up selling one of the houses he built but he had mm. this gorgeous house in northamptonshire and we were going to put his house on the market and sell it for him because the previous agent had failed to sell it. But then just before we took the hat, we're about to take the house on. He's like, no, nope, I found a buyer for it. I've agreed a price, really good price. It's all going through. A couple months go by and, and um, he calls us or calls the offices and says, I've, um, says this, the buyer that's meant to be buying my house has completely disappeared and fallen off the radar. Can you just run his name through your system? And see if you know anything about him, if he's viewed anything with you yeah. guys, whatever. He put his name into the system, and we think, yeah, this guy's also buying a house. One of the one of the houses we're representing in, and not Northampton, in Warwickshire somewhere, similar price. And they're meant to exchange contracts today. The sellers have packed up the entire house. Fucking They've got hell. a lorry waiting outside because they're moving to Ireland, and. They're meant to exchange and complete today, but all the buyer, the same guy, has disappeared. Turns out the guy was, I can't remember the word for it. Um, it's going to come back to me. It's Barry has multiple, multiple wives. A bigamist. A bigamist? A bigamist. I'm pretty sure it's bigamist. Learns something new every day. Um, I'll Google it, but and basically... Catch me if you can, Spec. Catch me if like Frank Abagnale, Spec. Yeah, um, think, yeah, yeah. But we, we then punch his real name into Google we managed to find his real name and we found out he's a bigamist turns out there's a story of where he had multiple girlfriends or wives whatever oh, but they didn't know about each other they didn't know about each other and he ended up in hospital once because he got in some accident and then all of the wives I think it was actually two of the wives turned up to hospital to <laughs> look after him at the same time Jeez. and both were like who the fuck are you in many ways he's very talented in other ways yeah. he's a cunt <laughs> Yeah, so he's obviously living a catch-me-if-you-can style life, but it caught him in the end. Um, there's, there's loads of stories like that. We had one guy rock up to this. We were trying to sell this house for um, three million pounds. We just had an open house this yeah. weekend, had 30, 40 people view it. It was a talk of the town. And then the next day, we we're doing a couple other one-off viewings as well for people that couldn't make the open house the day before. And as... Again, this wasn't me representing... It, was, it wasn't me there this time. I actually almost... Oh, same house, happened twice. I actually almost sold it to the second scam artist that tried to buy it that turned out to be a fraudster. But the first guy, he was driving past on the Sunday, saw the for sale sign outside, 
hadn't seen it advertised anywhere else, even though it'd been on the front page of the Sunday Times or whatever. Called the office, oh, can I just like pop in and like view this house? And we're like, well, actually, someone's there right now. Go and have a look. This guy rocks up, blacks out S class. He must be in his mid 50s. There's this young blonde lady with him and does this whistle stop tour with this 12,000 square foot house. And at the end, he says, yeah, I'll take it. What price? We save three million. He says, "Yep, done." Twelve thousand square foot for three million. Where is it? Like, this is the Midlands. This is this is this is the Midlands. This is Warwickshire yeah. with eighty acres as well. Um, and gets it through the solicitors. Actually, legally exchanges contracts on ten percent. I want to say it was five hundred grand actually, but I think I'm pretty sure it was ten percent. So three hundred grand. Is that non-refundable? That that's point? non-refundable. That's that's yeah. your deposit once you exchange contracts to commit to completion which is then that's when the legal transfer happens and the, the rest of the money's exchanged and then disappears loss of 300 so the, the seller kept the 300 it's like never applied like never applied um and it was in just fact, a thrill for him well actually the police ended up calling the office like six, probably 12 six or 12 months later um was basically invest- cash? investigating him i think there was a yeah, I mean money laundering case, and then I actually agreed to sell to another buyer, which ended up being another scam artist that was living in this make believe world. They had all this money and fucking delusion. You think, if they, you think of the full scam artists, they'd go like fifteen million St George's Hill, fucking South. Yeah, you wouldn't go Midlands. Yeah, you don't, yeah, unless no, they've got a specific niche for the Midlands. Well, their, their kids go. Maybe to school. they're from the South and they want to try something different. Well, their ki- kids go to school near there, and they're from it's that area, and it's a fantasy. Um, I would love to call him out right now, but um, I won't because I actually sold his house for him and then he never paid the fee. Yeah, he probably shouldn't. Might be dodgy, dodgy character. Um, yeah. But that's all behind me. I don't hold any... There was a lot of know. interesting stories working as an estate agent. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Lots of fuck-ups. It's a super interesting space. Like, I watched that Selling Sunset, mm-hmm. which is probably like... I mean, they seem to be all making millions and... I'll go on to another topic in a minute, potentially, but is that completely just Americanized television or is that just what it's actually like in prime real estate in LA? Um, it's a Do bit of think? both. That's Americanized television. That's also in LA where they operate under that self-employed model where they do make big commissions. Yeah. They are making cash. Um, but you've got to remember also that is the top 1% of earners in that space there's also 99% of brokers that yeah, of course. are doing like one or two deals a year that are just making like the bare minimum so um, as with as with any industry to be honest it's the top 1% that are always going to be exponentially making more but and the ones you hear about and the ones you hear about and you, the ones you compare yourself to <laughs> yeah true true <laughs> alright cool um, fucking hell that was a tangent but I could go on about that for, for probably like five episodes but mm-hmm. what was my original other question I suppose was the how much money you need to actually do a deal? Um, so, and I, like, how much can you give an actual example of a deal you did? Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be completely transparent. But when it comes to actual property, there are many different ways to get started. And it is the most common question. How much money do I need? Well, people either ask it as a question, they ask how much money do I need or how can I do it with the resource I have? And then there's a the people that flat out say, I don't have enough money. And like yeah. before they've even asked the question, they've just mm. come up with the excuse and and blocked out any possibility of them doing anything before they've even tried. Um, so the first property deal, the first property I ever bought was a two bed terrace house. The price I agreed to buy it for was 80,000 pounds. 
it was a motivated seller. So we wanted sort of someone that was in my position that didn't have a chain. I wasn't depending on selling another property. I was mm. just ready to go. I had um, the finance lined up and it was completely run down. The guy, it was almost like he was a bit of a hoarder and it just was not in a good state. This was the opportunity to add value. He was holding Alibaba um, stock. Yeah, I I bought that with a 10% deposit, um, and which is £8,000. I then, it required just under, I want to make sure I get the numbers right, just under £20,000 of work-ish. Um, it was around 20000 Obviously, I didn't have all of that twenty thousand pounds. Mm. It was for the six for the six months I was refurbishing it. I literally had zero money in my account at all times. So every penny that came in would go straight back out. Yeah, paying the electrician, paying for the kitchen, but just using investors' funds. Um, so or or leveraging debt. So had a credit card maxed out. Um, and I want to reiterate, I said this earlier, this was all like using it responsibly. I knew that there was enough profit in this deal. I knew I was going to sell it, that, that I could pay off these credit cards. I wasn't using credit cards on a speculative investment. Yeah. Um, borrowing money from family and friends on sort of like a loan agreement style. So look, I need to borrow X amount for this amount of time. I'll pay you back this amount of interest and things like that. So just being resourceful and one of the most important skills I guess in business but I think more so in in property is just learning how to be resourceful and just learning how to pull on resources to to make things happen because um you know you never have enough enough resources to do the deals you want to do and you need to learn how to raise finance like I said earlier all the big property players they raise money I was using investment if you're just going to rely on using your own cash to grow and scale a property business, it's going to take you so much longer. And and so, yeah, just using investors. And then from that, there was £26,000 profit in that deal, um, which as a return... Over what time period? How long did Over six take? months. Um, yeah, in good. and out from getting in the deal to get out the deal, which was which for me was like, like, that's the most money I'd ever seen in my bank account at one time. And then as return on cash, like it was a great return on cash and then mm. got into another one. Um, but... Um, were you getting, she said obviously 10% deposit, 80 grand, you put eight grand down. Was that mm. on a mortgage basis or what? So this how, is how where, does that work? This is where I have I to guess be- a lot of people would probably instinctively say, oh, how did you get a mortgage so young or whatever? That's probably what I would think um, if it was a mortgage. Yeah, so there are many different ways to finance a property. That was with a residential mortgage and... There's caveats to this because to use a mortgage for essentially flipping a property where you buy it, do it up, get out, is not the right thing to do. Yeah. It's it's actually against the terms of a mortgage. Mortgage is a mortgage is long term lending. Banks want you to use that product for the longer term and they're not suited to that sort of thing. The best thing is either using bridging finance, which isn't as scary as what most people make it out to be, plus also just using private investment. So for example, a house I'm buying right now um, in Luton, I'm buying that with essentially a private mortgage from an investor. Yeah. So they're giving me 90%, um, well, just under 90% of the purchase price. Essentially, they're acting as a mortgage lender, but it's just a private investor. Mm. Um, so residential mortgage, you can do it if it's your intention to sort of stay there, live in the property. That was 
I guess, kind of my intention to stay there, live there, but technically, um, yeah, on the record, but on the record, but yeah, so, but that, that was, again, that was something I had to learn along the way. And I want to make sure if whatever I'm saying, I'm being responsible about what I'm not saying hundred percent, that's the right thing to do. But that was also an, an example of me being resourceful, making mistakes, but yeah, worked in my favor, in my favor. And to, to get a mortgage like that anyway, you just need three months pay slips. Um, yeah, true. I unless it's only 80 grand in it. Yeah, unless you're self-employed, it's a little bit um, a little bit more difficult, but there are solutions there. And anyway, it should be either looking to work with an investor or bridging finance or a joint venture with somebody. So, um, but in terms of, and I know there's going to be people commenting and saying, well, how do you find a house for 80 grand? Well, look up north, but also yeah, um, one of the key skills of being a property, a good property investor is learning how to find those good deals. That house, when I bought it, was probably worth 100 I managed to agree for 80 because I presented my offer correctly. I, and what you don't see is for the 12 months before that, the amount of failures that I had tried to buy properties, made offers, all fell through. It was like that was mm. not the first viewing I went on, the first offer I made. That was the first deal. There was over 12 months of like just failures and not giving up before that, like literally not getting anywhere. And then it, all it takes is that first deal. First one's always the hardest. Uh, but always one you learn the most from. But there's there's many different ways to to do a property deal. So you can can you do it with none no money? No, there always needs to be a lot of the time money involved. But you can just use other people's money. So joint ventures, partnering people, find someone that has got money but maybe doesn't want to dedicate the time, energy, effort. Whereas you're happy to go out, find the deal, structure the deal, manage the project, manage the exit, the sale, and you split the profits 50-50. They arrange the finance, you do all the work, it's fair exchange, it's a joint venture. So there's many different ways to structure a deal. Yeah, fuck. Just because I know whatever I say, I know what all the excuses and, and complaints and questions people are going to have on top of it. I'd rather just try and cover all bases. Yeah. So in your, to build on that, let's say in your Instagram bio, I think it says 55 million GDV, which I'm assuming is gross, <laughs> gross domestic value. Is that right? Development value. Gross development value. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And how did you get there? And what's going on with that? Because I don't know what the fuck that means. Um, really. When I actually took that out of my Instagram bio, I didn't know how sort of relate, I, I, you know, it gets to the point where you can, it's, there, there are vanity metrics in property. I'll be the first to admit. And, um, same with any business to be honest you know you can throw revenue numbers around and everything, yeah of but, course yeah. Um, so our main focus now is is land developments it has been for the last 18 months um, and so what that means is acquiring land we're primarily focusing on residential housing so um, and, and schemes where they're sort of detached nice houses the sort of stuff we want to build mm. um, we, we are have got our fingers in other pies for like apartment buildings and that sort of private rented sector and student accommodation but that's like further away but right now our sort of pipeline what we're buying what we're building we're buying two sites in Cambridgeshire um, for one for 17 houses one to build 16 houses and essentially that gross development value that means the total value of all the properties once they're built yeah. So one we actually completed on this week. I was actually signing all the completion docs on Monday or Tuesday to get that through. That's to build the 17 houses, which they're only three and four bedroom, kind of 
we call them dormer houses. They're not quite dormer bungalows. They're a little bit bigger, but they've just got sort of that um, that pitched roof and they're not full two-story houses. So they're like 400 grand a house, six or so million quids worth of houses there. There's other ones. But that 55 million, that's primarily made up of the stuff as well. Some, we've got some bigger sites. There's, there's five sites we're taking through planning, which mm. means it hasn't got planning permission yet. We've secured on a purchase contract. We're taking it through planning. That's to build... Well, it's impossible to, to know the exact number because one, you don't know exactly what you're going to get planning for. You might get knocked back. You might apply it for 50 units. You might only get yeah. 45 you might apply for 70. We don't know. We, But essentially, yeah, there's a pipeline around 50 million quids worth of property that we'll be delivering over yeah, the next so, I mean, three years. Is, yeah, like, like you say, 50 million quids worth of potential property. But I get the question people have, mm-hmm. and I have then, so that's a bunch of developments that mm-hmm. you said we are working on. So firstly, two questions. Who is we? Okay. And then secondly, I probably shouldn't ask two-part questions because the first part takes fucking 20 minutes. We've got a tangent. <laughs> but the second part is so then how, how are you financing those and like just in layman's terms mm-hmm. you know how do you go from I want to do a fucking deal like hypothetically you've got all the knowledge but don't have the cash how do you get there so who is we and then how do you get the cash so we is myself and my business partner Rosie um, known Rosie since school days um, been together for uh, known each other for 10 years we're not together um, everyone always asks are we dating are we together we're not mm. um, I do refer to us sometimes as a work wife but Jeez, um, that's controversial. That is controversial, but to the wrong um, crowd. Hundred Karen's <laughs> commenting. I know it's a sexist podcast. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's Rosie's got an amazing background. I won't dive too much into that, but couldn't ask for a better business partner and a more knowledgeable business partner in that sense. And she's sort of the the face and head coach of our education sides on the property development side mm. because she's got the credibility she's been there she's done that she's um you're just some cunt with a lambo yeah i'm just no. <laughs> yeah um but yeah i've 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 sort of learned from her over the last however many years and we've we've done she's stepped away from her family business we're doing these deals together and in terms of how we finance it so let's use the example of the 17 houses we're building the total costs on that site, including, so total cost includes the price you're paying for the land, mm. the build costs, all the professional fees, so what you're paying, the architects, the employees, agents, the project managers, all the finance costs, because there's a cost of borrowing money, etc. is about yeah. 5 million quid. Um, a big portion of that is bank financing. So we have development finance. So the banks are happy to look at, okay, total costs of this. We'll give you X amount. So kind of like a mortgage, but on a bigger scale, they give you a portion of money towards the purchase of the land. And then they'll give you, in this instance, they're giving us 100% of the build cost. So we're buying the land for 900 grand. They're giving us a few hundred grand towards that. Once we've purchased the land, we then, then we literally say, right, to get to this stage of the build, we need to draw down. 500 grand we draw down the 500 grand once we've drawn that down the banks are happy we then draw down the next sum the next sum because they don't obviously want to be overexposed at any point where they've drawn down so much money we've only done so much on the build um so then there's sort of that remaining input that's required um the banks need to see some essential skin essentially some skin in the game that's made up of a bit of our cash plus some investors so on that project we've got one, 
two, three, four investors that have put cash in as well as us. Mm. And they are not silent partners, but they are, um, they're not involved in the day-to-day management or decision-making. They are essentially just putting their money in. And then at the end of the project, at the end of the scheme, once we've built them, sold them, the money's coming back into the business, we pay off the banks first. And then that remaining profit, there's a profit share where we've allocated a portion of that profit to the investors that put the money in now and they get yeah. a nice return on their money. So again, it's it's investors. Intre- right, so hypothetically, if I mm. know how to do this, mm-hmm. let's just assume that as the first thing because I guess learning from you, whatever, internet, pe- people could learn that. The next question is, so assuming I have, well... Firstly, let's assume I've got, I don't know, half a million quid, in, mm-hmm. which most people don't, 99% of people don't. Can I then just go to a bank and borrow a few million quid for a, a project? Or is there other criteria and credibility that they need as well? Um, and that's assuming you've got the cash to start with. Yeah, so assuming you've got the cash to start with. So the banks, bank, banks will always, I say always, the lending market changes. Sometimes it gets a little bit tighter and they want to be yeah. a bit stricter on, on the criteria. But let's say you go into a project where you need to borrow two million quid from the bank. You've got your half million quid or um, whatever. The banks will make decisions based on a few different factors. One, how much profit is in the deal. If it's like there's a stupid profit margin where there's 30% profit margin, they're going to be like, okay, cool. We're happy to offer you, offer you like a higher it's a mm. lo- loan to value or loan to cost essentially how do you prove that in the first place so you show them a, you show them an a appra- financial yeah. appraisal um, right. a full financial appraisal obviously evidence to support all of the costs you've put in that appraisal mm. um, typically you need to be showing over 20 just over 20% like 22% um, or 20 to 22% to actually get any lending at all um, so if there's a high profit margin um, another big thing is your experience as a developer yeah. So if you've got absolutely no experience, that loan to cost, the percentage of the total cost you need they're going to lend you is going to be lower. Yeah. Um, and also if you're going to use a, what's called a mains contractor versus using a, subcon- a subcontracting group, basically are you just going to get, pay one company to manage the entire build, they take on the risk, they manage everything, they project manage anything, everything, obviously you pay a bit more for that but they know how to do it. They've done it a million times. Or are you, as a first-time developer, going to try and project manage it yourself where you don't really know what you're doing. There's probably going to be delays. You're probably going to make mistakes. So their preference is obviously use a, a respectable and reputable mains contractor. Um, so there's a few different factors like that. But if you've got an amazing track record, you're an experienced developer, yes, they're going to be much more yeah. comfortable lending you money. We We had, it was not easy for us to raise finance from the banks like 70% of the banks we spoke to just probably more than that rejected us straight away just because of our age Mm. and then sometimes our experience wasn't that strong enough Um, but then once they actually had a chat with us understood actually okay these guys know their shit um, and they thought this through they're not just willy nilly asking for money they um, they were then more open to discussions so it's not I don't want to sit here and say anyone can do it go to a bank they'll give you the money but Again, you've got to be resourceful. You've got to find ways to make it happen. Whether it's and if the banks offer you lower money, then it means you just find more investors to put more equity in the deal. So there's things like that. And then that was assuming if you had money. So if you if you if you know what you're doing and you uh-huh. haven't got money, 
and you've never done it before hypothetically so mm-hmm. you know most people listening to this if if they're willing to hustle and learn whatever do you think it's possible to go and then raise okay granted you're going to start with a smaller scale but do you think like raising money off investors mm-hmm. is actually realistic if if you have learned stuff and you come across as credible or whatever even if it's your first time and then like secondly what who are those investors are they literally like individuals are they private Honestly, funds? Honestly, could be anyone. Uh, individuals, mostly, at this level, at this yeah. scale. At a smaller scale, they're going to be individuals. But there is absolutely not a shortage of cash out yeah. there. And in fact, I generally, right now, more people, most people have got more money than I've ever had before, um, post-COVID, just because mm. of how much money's been pumped into circulation. There's a lot of people sitting on a lot of cash, and it could honestly be anyone. I've I said this on a podcast the other day, it was... I've spoken to people I've met in a sauna randomly that said, oh, I've got a couple hundred grand. Um, was it a sauna in central London below your beautiful Riverside <laughs> no, apartment? this was actually back in the Midlands. Um, but actually, at funnily enough, in my apartment, I put, um, there is a neighbour that I've met that ended up, he's a private lender to property entrepreneurs. Yeah, um, that's the benefit of being there. And we're, we're, we're um, looking to work together. Um it could be like taxi driver I've had it before where we get chatting and he's like oh I've got loads of money lying around is there anything we can do together on it he's like, got honest- 100 million lying around he's a taxi driver for fun <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know but it, it could be it could be 10 grand it could yeah. be 50 grand it could be 500 grand mm. um, the way to raise the the best ways to raise a finance one is you need to know your shit you need to be educated because people that have actually got money sitting around the reason they've got money sitting around is because they're smart and they know how to make money. And so they're going to be able to ask the pressing questions that will allow them to determine whether you're just chatting shit or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So get educated, know your shit and know your numbers. Watch Dragon's Den, look at how many pitches crumble because the entrepreneurs have got a good business, but they don't know their numbers. Um, Actually find a good deal. If you've got a shit deal, you can be the best person in the world and the most charming person in the world, but you're going to struggle to raise finance for it. If you've actually gone out, find a good deal where the numbers stack. And even if shit hits a fan a little bit, you're still going to be able to exit and get your money back. Um, helps massively. The no like, and trust factor. If you've shown up on social media every day, you've built a relationship with people, they feel like they know, like, and trust you. You've demonstrated. I've heard that before. That's good. Um, People or people throw money at you. they won't throw money at you. That's the wrong way to say it, but they'll be more open to investing in you. Mm. Um, can anyone do it? If you've literally just watched a few YouTube videos on how to become a property investor and you want to go ask, start trying to raise fifty grand, hundred grand, you're going to struggle. You've got to get in the trenches, study the game, yeah, find like good deals, anything. get educated. And earn your stripes. Yeah, earn your stripes. Show up on social media, but it hundred percent is possible. Like I've I've done it, and um, and I I've seen people. I've seen so many people do it, and people that raise money and have now consistently raised money will tell you it actually becomes like it's just a skill that you have to learn. And once you yeah. get momentum, um, but just start with raising five grand, and you just have to once you've done it once it's sort of like that proof of concept in your head that oh, if I've done it once I could probably do it again I could probably do it for more money yeah um, I, I've raised seven figures at this point and it's almost just like like just second nature for me I can just have the conversation I know what to say I know what numbers to present I know what questions to ask 
and I'm fortunately at a point now where I can pick and choose who I decide to work with. Yeah. But if anyone wants to invest in any of our projects, just reach out to me. Yeah, true. To be fair, like the whole raising <clears throat> money thing, I've been a bit more exposed to that in an e-com sense, very different to property in the past year because of what mm-hmm. happened, blah, blah, blah. I was speaking to a mate the other night and it's just like, yeah, but the point is there's so much fucking money in the market mm-hmm. and obviously, yeah, different property e-com, whatever. But like, if you know, if you've got a track record of you've clearly got a proof of concept, you know what you're doing. Like obviously you would struggle to raise money for an e-com brand if you've never done anything before and yeah, you're 18, mm-hmm. which is why get in the trenches, do drop shipping, whatever, start a fucking bedroom brand. But like now, if I needed to raise money for the next e-com brand or I wanted to for whatever reason... I'm 99.9% confident I could do that. I know which funds to speak to. And that's both raising debt, I know what and, I'd say. debt and venture capital. Banks are yeah, going to be more... Yeah, both really, yeah. Banks will be more open to lending to you. VCs will be more open to, to working with yeah. you. Yeah. And that, it's the exact same with property. Had, had you same s- principles. Same principles. If you've actually got a good brand, good product, and you've got credibility, case studies, you're educated, you know your shit, it's going to be 10 times easier. If you're just starting out... Like I said, you've got to earn your, trench, earn your stripes, get in the trenches. Get in the trenches, yeah. Fuck. Spent too long in the trenches <laughs> the past year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so where are you going with this education thing? Um, what, what's the vision for that? So so the um, the vision for it is, one, the, the education space in the property industry is bit of a wild west um it's been a lot of bad press a lot of people operating in ways i disagree with Mm. and i genuinely believe there's an opportunity here to sort of raise the standards in in property education something i'm really passionate about doing and it is property is something nine out of ten people want to learn about i go downstairs to the street now and i find 10 random people and say would you at any point in your life be interested in learning how to invest in property whether it's a full-time thing whether it's a passion of passive investment nine out of ten yeah. people would say yes but it's just a shame that it's become so cloak and dagger so i do generally want to build the best property education that exists and um once i've done that or as i begin to do that really scale that up and use it as a tool to essentially buy an audience and help people make more educated decisions as whether they want to invest in any of our projects or not. And so our main focus, and I always believe the number one way for me to grow our education company is not by spending more on marketing. It's not by building better sales funnels, building better teams. There is that, but I believe the number one way to actually sell that is to actually grow and build the best property business we yeah. can and actually do our own deals and do better deals. And as we do that, I believe people begin to see what we're capable of and and want to learn from us. And yes, I still want to build the best teams and, and have the best coaches and the best training possible, which which is a process and it's not perfect right now, but we've had got amazing case studies. I genuinely believe in what we sell. Um, so the main vision is to build essentially um we want to the real estate side of things want to move into acquiring and building more institutional level assets so the big apartment schemes you see Mm. that a lot of the big asset managers the private equity funds they buy and hold we want to build them and hold them ourselves and we want to do that crowdfunding through social media so the only way to do that is really dominate social media the easiest way for us to do that is to essentially buy that audience by offering 
training and establish ourselves as an authority in that space yeah there's definitely a bigger picture it's smart and I think there's lessons there for anyone that wants to get into property as well like build a social media profile yeah it's so true like like you were saying obviously if you're a property thing Mm -hmm. like the bread and butter is actually doing stuff then obviously your people will take your education seriously your social media seriously Mm -hmm. and and it's not just smoke and mirrors like fucking 99% of people selling something on social media Um, well the best way to sell an e-com course would be to build a sick e-com brand (laughs) exactly yeah exactly Um, and and just in general like and I guess similar with this this podcast I started the first episode with like a fucking big old Mm -hmm. deep story about loads of shit but instantly it's like credibility authenticity Mm -hmm. it's not just some 17 year old in a room who's never done anything talking about a load of shit which is fine anyway if they want to make make a podcast but it might not resonate with as many people yeah so we could have a whole other conversation about the the course space and the coaching space I think yeah there are as long as you're you're never gonna be the smartest in the room but as long as there's people that maybe below you and I mean that in a sense that below you in terms of their knowledge level yeah. and experience teach them but um, yeah just try not to teach everything that things you haven't done yet um, so yeah I think I read some as well it was like I think it was on Twitter actually which I've started using loads recently someone <laughs> said like there's no people have there's no point having a mentor like people have gone about having a mentor that's like 90 years old but the mm-hmm. best mentor is like I think it was like three to five years ahead of you in your yeah. industry because and granted there'll, there'll be things that someone that's 70 years old and has been in the industry for ages can teach you but it's going to be more general and less specific because the industry in any case in any industry has changed so much and I was like fuck that's so true well, I like, if spend, I spoke to some yeah. econ person that was 90 yeah. econ didn't exist for a start mm-hmm. like the people I want to be learning from are you know I don't know, Lewis Morgan or whatever, like Ben Francis at Gymshark, for example, like sort of five years ahead of me, mm-hmm. hypothetically. Well, I could go spend 40 grand for an hour with Grant Cardone mentorship right now, but yeah. he just he, he's just kind of that too far ahead that I don't think his advice would be too... Well, it'd be good, but I probably wouldn't be getting as much bang for the buck, whereas I'd rather He'd say find 10x a lot, wouldn't he? Yeah, it's just 10x everything. Right? Yeah, I went to t- two of his conferences. <laughs> the second one in Miami ended up just being a fucking... Sales. The biggest send up. Well, we barely, oh, yeah. rock, we barely even rocked up to the thing. <laughs> it was in Miami Stadium or whatever. I think he went too big with the stadium. The one in Las Vegas in an arena was full previously. This was like an empty stadium. But it just ended up being like a send. Well, give us some crooked stories then before we wrap up. Fucking hell. Well, just on this trip, to be fair, this was a good trip. So this was like... It was me and a bunch of like e-com boys or whatever. This was like March 2019. Probably the most like high risk send of all time. <laughs> and there's probably part, some parts of the stories I shouldn't say on here. But where did we start? We started in, I think we went LA, across to Miami, back to Arizona, then Vegas, then back to LA. That's what it was. And it was like two weeks. And like the main excuse for being there was this 10x thing, which was in the middle of the trip. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in Miami, we were there for like five days, got this fuck off big like Airbnb mansion thing. Anyway, so we rent like a Lamborghini Urus, um, a Rolls Royce Dawn and a Ferrari 488 Spider, which by the way, you can finance these cars per month for less than- How, how much were those three they cars like two all and a half grand a day. And how many days do you have them for? Oh, like a week between like, it was a lot of money. There was like eight of us there to be fair. How much, um, well, how much in total do you reckon you spent on these cars? What, like 10 bags? More? Probably, yeah. It was a lot. It was a fucking scam, but- there's a video on my old YouTube channel actually in the Rolls Royce and it was fucking just yeah and I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure the guy that owned the rental shop 
well i know for a fact like he was probably just like a drug dealer as well <laughs> and he was like drunk dr- he ended up coming out partying with us and we, we anyway long story short we had all these cars you can imagine what it was we're out, we're out like every night but one night in particular and this is like a fucked up story but it's absolutely true he was like he picked us up in I think another Eurus. It was like absolutely paralytic. So he was drunk driving <laughs> us around, whatever. We ended up going to live Miami, which is like yeah, I don't know. I think Dave Grutman owns it, that like yeah. mogul in the nightclub space, like the club of Miami, I think. I'm not an expert in that space, but it was a fucking big club. We rock up, we've all probably had hypothetically maybe one or two drinks, shouldn't have. We're driving we rock up in the four eight eight and the fucking dawn. Mm-hmm. So it's just like ball of shit. And everyone starts shouting like, it's a rental. I was like, of course it's a fucking rental, you cunt. We're not from, a, we're not from America. And we're here on a part, we're here on a holiday, like getting lit, you cunt. So obviously it's a rental. It even is a fucking you rental. you couldn't afford the rental. <laughs> still spending 10 grand for the week on yeah, this. So. whatever it was. And we ended up going to this club. Anyway, meet these bunch of like, I'm not even exaggerating here, like 25 fucking Venezuelan people, like girls and guys. And obviously like, Miami has a lot of like South Americans mm-hmm. in it. I've never actually been to South America, so whatever. But um, if you Google Venezuela, it's probably not the lowest crime of a country and culture, shall we say? I mm-hmm. mean, don't want to offend anyone, but I doubt we get many viewers there. Anyway, end up everyone comes back to our fucking Airbnb, which is like this massive. wasn't like the most baller villa ever, to be fair, but it was like this big fuck off villa. Blah blah blah. They all come back, we invite them, we think this is all like, sick, we're inviting them back, this is nice, like good things to do, whatever, like friend, making friends. Anyway, long story short, no one gets any of the girls that we're trying to get, mm-hmm. no one. And like two hours into like the after party, we realised that like three laptops have been stolen and all the Venezuelans have fucked off. Fuck. And then next morning, no one fucking shagged, no one got any girls, which is what we wanted. And you lost three laptops. And three of us lost our laptops and then one of them it was me and a guy called Eddie that had invited him back technically so like Tim if he's watching this um, got his laptop nicked and I ended up having to pay for his laptop because he was like I wasn't going to invite them back um, and there was a bit of a fallout the next day but there we go and that was one story from that trip but then we ended up going to Arizona in Josh Illus 60 is that how you say his name? Josh, you know the brand Snow Teeth Whining you've probably seen it I don't know he's like this guy though Anyway, yeah, it's like this major e-com guy went to like some e-com conference. They always turn into the sends, these things. It's mm-hmm. fucking hilarious. I've got a story about the Philippines, but that be for another episode, um, <laughs> which you probably heard in the group chat. Yeah. That's too dodgy for a microphone. But um, yeah, it was fucking high risk in like Arizona. We ended up staying like this 15,000 square foot pad, which you can probably buy there for like $2 million because the land's so cheap. Mm-hmm. And it was just a big send. Anyway, like you can probably imagine what happened, but ended up waking up at like 8am in some strip club and it was not a nice what I say waking Wait, up you like, woke up just like sobering up is probably a better term okay um, and yeah I'll, I'll let you let your imagination do the rest but it was, it was a good trip and, and yeah how the fuck did I get onto that 10x conference I don't know we should do an episode where it's just like stories of the send from the past few years mm-hmm. because there's been a lot to be fair and like covid slowed them down Obviously, because no one could go anywhere, but like, there's some fucking crooked stories from like Bali, particularly the Philippines. We'll save them for a special episode. Yeah, that'll be fucking high risk. But um, I'll try and wrap it up shortly. Um, yeah. Obviously, you've had two Lambos. Mm-hmm. I met you when I had the green R8, and I don't think you you hadn't had any sick cars then. Like, obviously, I currently don't have a sick car, and I'll fucking have one again. But I'm <laughs> jealous of you every day. Well, I'm, I'm not, but like. I love cars, whatever. Um, 
which one got you more girls? Was it the coop or the or the spider? Well, they're kind of they're both sort of a context it's for those mentioned. Car. They were literally both the same car: the Huracan Performante. What the first one was a bright blue, like kind of baby Miami blue. blue. Ba- yeah. Baby blue is better. Um, uh, blue Cephas is the official Lamborghini color yeah. name, and that when it was cleaned in the summer it just turned heads because you could just not miss it yeah, and then so what I've sick. got now is like a satin black kind of Batmobile spec and it's a convertible so it's got like the felt roof um, which one got me most goals to be honest I never really rinsed it to get females um, hard to attribute the, it's, yeah, the car's it's, involvement it's, in this there's process there's iOS 14 attribution issue there um, yeah. <laughs> The which one got more attention? The blue one definitely got more attention, uh, for sure, because just the color popped. Um, but once you've done the cars, you re- you know, you, you for years and years and years dream about getting your dream car. You get them, and then you realize actually, it's an overpriced, depreciating piece of metal. We which say is still that. Sick. Well, actually, the first well, one yours. I sold for break even, and then this mm. one I will be able to sell it for a profit. So okay, true. Okay, maybe I'm just not smart enough. But yeah, but either way, when I bought the cars, my intention was to make money on them. It was like, you know, if, if I'm going to lose money on them, I'm going to lose money on them. I'm yeah. just going to enjoy it in the process. And yeah. yeah, but you always want more. You could always think of more cars that I'd want, but you've got to catch yourself not falling for the whole shiny object syndrome. And um, at the end of the day, it's the love of the game. That's what I want to keep doing. It's not about cars, lifestyle, whatever. It's... Um, it's only a little bit about cars. It's a little bit about cars. It's it's fair. those are the trophies. Those are the things that you have a stressful day at the office. You jump in the car, you have fun. It reminds yeah. you that it's all worth it. And at the end of the day, you've got to it's just an experience. You've got to reward yourself. Um, I think I do think it's important to reward yourself and have those things to sort of work for trophies. And f- for me, especially like the the car was one thing I just really, really was a big goal mm. of mine. And then ticking off was proof that, you know what, I set myself a goal. I achieved it. And it reinforces the fact that you think big, you work hard towards a certain goal and they come. So there's 101 ways I could justify buying it. There's also 101 ways I could probably reasons now, for not buying one. I but completely think a supercar, if you're making money, is net beneficial. Of course like mindset the network surprisingly that it opens doors to mm-hmm. potentially which is why I'm fucking pissed that I have a sick car right now but I had nine cars in three years which is ludicrous they weren't all sick but yeah it's like yeah I definitely missed that rush of just hooning around London late at night but we'll be back there soon yeah for sure summer 2022 oh for sure I hope so fucking hell but yeah you're, you're right you realise that it's not what you thought it was, but it's still sick in other ways. And yeah, I n- never want to be one of those virgins. That's like <laughs> Gary V used to preach it a lot. It's probably changed a little bit, but like, you know, don't spend money on anything, but your business until you're 67 years old. It's like, well, who wants to be 67 and have a Lambo? Yeah. You want to be in your twenties and have a Lambo. Of course. That's cool. Or twenties, thirties, whatever. Like, well, that's when you can enjoy it the most. You get the most literally bang for your buck from it. There's yeah. the biggest return on it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, Let's wrap it up there, I guess. Sick. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, could have got a lot more crooked than that. We'll save that for another episode because there's a lot of fucking stories that I personally have, and I'm sure you do, and a lot of other people that can come well, on this let's podcast. Let's do a part two of part two, three, four, five of like yeah. weird shit. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot in that. To be fair, um, try not to let these drag on too much, but I'm excited to see where you take it because. Yeah, I suppose that's the benefit of having friends that are doing shit. It makes me think, fuck. Like, even just listening there, it makes me think, Christ, I should probably think bigger in certain respects and apply it to my own thing. And 
I guess that's the intention with the podcast really is just to keep it real and well let's do a part two there's, there's a load of conversations we can have around there around network and there's there's some stories that explain that I'm sure I could share about how I had that those. house story alone could be a fucking podcast episode yeah so so let's let's do a part two and give the viewers a reason to subscribe yeah definitely and on, on that note um, like comment subscribe and as I said in the last episode listen to this podcast wherever the fuck you please whether that's YouTube Spotify Apple or some weird other app and cheers for listening I'll see you on the next one and peace